Several lessons ago, we mentioned the fact that the key verse for outlining the book of Revelation was, who remembers what verse? 119. It was Revelation 119 where John, remember, was told by Christ to write the things which he had seen, and that's what we find in chapter 1, then to write the things which are, and the things which are are the seven churches which represent the church age. We find that in chapters 2 and 3. And then finally, to write the things which shall be hereafter, meaning here after the church age. And that's what we find in uh, the contents of chapters 4 to 22. Well, that was the key verse for outlining the book of Revelation, 119. However, the key phrase with regard to the theme of the book is found in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at in today's lesson. And that phrase also provides us with the title for today's message, which is, Behold, He Cometh. And the phrase is found in Revelation 1, the very first three words, Behold, He Cometh. The theme, remember, of the book of Revelation is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the theme. But specifically, it is the coming again, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in his full glory. Did you know that the Lord personally spoke about his own return a total of 21 times? And do you know what 21 is if you multiply it? Right. (laughs) Seven times three. Seven, of course, is the number of perfection or fullness or completeness. And three is the number of the Trinity. And next to the subject of faith, did you know that there is no subject in all of God's word from Revelation to Genesis, which is mentioned more times than the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, for every one time that his first coming is mentioned, his second coming is mentioned a total of eight times. And readers of the scripture are warned more than 50 times to be ready for his return. So if nothing else, these statistics demonstrate to us the importance of teaching the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord, which is part of what we are going to begin to do in this morning's lesson as we look at Revelation chapter 1 verses 5b, which means the latter part of verse 5, all the way to verse 8. We're really moving at a rapid pace here. 5b to 8. I do think that starting next week, we are going to pick up some speed. I hope. Now, as we consider, here's our outline for today. As we consider these few verses, 5b to 8, we're going to look at them in three sections. First of all, uh, in verses 5b, the latter half of 5, and verse 6, we're going to look at a doxology of praise. And then in part 2 of our outline, which is only verse 7, we're going to consider a declaration of promise. There's a promise given to us in that verse. And then lastly, in verse 8, we will discuss part 3, a divine person. And this divine person is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. Um, he's, he's called the one which is and which was and which is to come. And also he is referred to as the Almighty. Now, who do you think that one is? Sounds like God, the Father, doesn't it? Or is it Christ? Well, we'll see when we get to that verse. Let's look, first of all, now at part one of our outline, a doxology of praise. And for that, I want to read just the latter half of verse five and then all of verse six. 
It says, I'm going to start where it says, unto him. You see that in verse 5? Unto him, and that him refers back to the one John had just been writing about, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he had referred to as the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and also the prince of the kings. So he says, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John, in verses 3 to the first part of verse 5, had recorded the triune Godhead's salutation blessing of two things. Remember, of what and what? Grace and peace, exactly. He had recorded that blessing to the seven churches, which are in Asia Minor. And then he ended that by mentioning that this blessing, this salutation blessing of grace and peace, came from the three members of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the uh, Holy Spirit was mentioned second, and the third one mentioned was God the Son. And he gave three titles for God the Son, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, the, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of this earth. And then, after he recorded that, John was so overwhelmed with uh, gratitude that he breathed out his own response in a benediction of praise, which, of course, he was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit. His response came out as this benediction of praise on behalf of all of those who have been redeemed by the one who loves them and by the one who washed them from their sins by his own precious blood. And who, of course, is that one? Christ, yes. And the response of our hearts today should be the same as the response of John. To the triune God who had given him peace and grace even in the midst of his trials. Remember, John is in exile on the Isle of Patmos for um, his faith. So to this triune God who gave him grace and peace, even in these awful, in this awful circumstances, I'm sure it was very lonely on that island for John. Yet he was so overflowing with thankfulness that he was able to write, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory speaks of worship. And dominion, of course, speaks of authority. Not only are we to give God our praise and our worship and our thanksgiving, but we are also to give him dominion. We are to give him authority over our lives. And you know that it was at the point of dominion that all our trouble began, that the human race rebelled and continues to rebel. It was at this point of dominion and authority. Man in general does not want to come under anyone's authority, especially a holy God who judges sin. So men willfully refuse to give him the authority which he deserves in their lives. They refuse to submit to his dominion, and consequently they do not give him the glory which he deserves for being the one who has given them every good and every perfect gift. I mean, life itself comes from God. However, with the believer, this tragic situation is to be reversed. Although the world refuses to give God his rightfully deserved glory, and although the world refuses to bow before 
his authority and give him dominion over their lives. This is not to be the case with the Christian. In the believer's life, God is to receive all of the glory. Everything we do in our lives should be for his glory. And he is to be given full dominion over our lives. And why is that? Well, John gives us three reasons why we are to give God. And when I say God, I speak of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why we are to give him the glory with our lives and in our lives and through our lives and why we are to submit to his dominion. Three reasons. First of all, because he loves us. Secondly, for loosing us. We'll talk about these. And third, because he has lifted us. What is exciting for me to know when I studied the original Greek is that where it says, if you look at verse um, 5b, where it says, unto him that loved us, the original Greek verb tense for that word loved is not given in the past tense as our English version here translates it. It is given in the present tense. I looked this up in my Greek Greek Bible at home, and it definitely is given in the present tense. It really should read, to him loving us. And did you know, this is what's exciting, this is the only time in the New Testament, the only time in all the New Testament where we are told that Jesus loves us in the present tense. Every other time, we are told that he loved us in the past tense. And, of course, I mean, you and I know that Jesus loves us, right? We know that. But isn't it good to have it down in writing, at least in one place in the New Testament, that he loves us in the present tense so that when we sing that little song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, we have Revelation 1.5b to back up what we're saying. Jesus does love us. And I am glad that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to Put this in the present tense because this assures us that he still loves us as much today as he did before he laid the foundation for this world. And it assures us that he still loves us today as much as he did on the day that he hung on the cross in our place and suffered all that pain and shame and even death itself for us. Isn't it great to know that Jesus didn't stop loving us? And that he won't ever stop loving us throughout all of eternity. He keeps on loving. That's how it's given in the present tense. He keeps on loving us. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't somehow spend all of his love on the cross. You know, that didn't take all the love out of him and just drain him. So that he would have none left over for all the rest of the ages. His love is limitless. It knows no bounds. And knowing that truth should make us break out in a doxology of praise just as it made John break out in praise as he reflected upon the magnificence of his Savior's love. Our God truly is love incarnate, isn't he? No one can love like the Savior can love. But I'm glad that it's in the present tense at least one place in our Bible. So you might want to make a little note of that next to that verse. And then John gives us another reason to give the Lord glory and dominion over our lives. And this we find in the last part of verse 5 where he reminds his readers that it is Christ 
who has washed us from our sins in his own what? Blood. Christ is the one and the only one who has loosed us or released us from our sins. And he did so by washing us with his own shed sinless blood. Now the Greek word which is used for washed there can be translated as either washed or loosed. Sometimes that word is translated as washed in the Bible. Sometimes it is translated as loosed or freed. You know, we're freed from our sins or we're washed from our sins. And some commentators make a big deal about which one it should be. I didn't find that big of a deal about it because to me both are true. Because the word washed tells me that Christ's blood removed sin's stain. And the word loosed tells me that his blood removed sin's chain. We had to be cleansed and we had to be freed, you see, from both the stain and the chain of sin. And this is exactly what Charles Wesley was thinking about when he wrote the words for the song, the, uh, song that says, He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. That's the chain. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. That speaks about the washing. So he loosed us and he washed us with his blood. Now, because God is holy and just, he must punish sin. You all know that. And therefore, he had two options with regard to how he would punish sin. First of all, he can punish the sinner for his own sin. That's option number one. He can punish the sinner for his own sin. Or he can punish someone else for the sinner's sin. I'm one behind. I'm going to get you caught up. Here we go. He can either punish the sinner for his own sin, or he can punish someone else in the sinner's place. The only problem with the second option is that the sinner's substitute must himself be what? Sinless, right. Otherwise, he too would need a substitute to die for him, or he'd have to die for his own sin. Now, because all humans are born in sin, having inherited the Adamic sin nature, no mere human, no mere man could qualify to be the sinner's substitute. And angels, the only other created beings which there are in this universe, angels are not human. So they could not qualify to be man's sin substitute. You know, angels are immortal. They cannot die. So an angel couldn't die for our sins. So the only solution was that God himself become a man. But in doing that, he could not be born by a human father because it is through our fathers that we inherit the Adamic sin nature. So he had to um, avoid being born by a human father. And therefore, Christ, God's son, was conceived by not a human father, but by the Holy Spirit, and he was placed into the womb of a human mother. He was human, he was man, he was 100% man, but he was born sinless and he remained perfectly sinless throughout his life. He was impeccable. He couldn't have sinned if he wanted to because he is God. That's the doctrine of impeccability, which if you don't know about that doctrine, we did an in-depth study on it 
when the Lord was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And that was lesson number 12 in our Life of Christ study. If you'd like to know more about could Jesus have sinned in the wilderness or could he not ever have sinned? So if you want to get that tape or those notes, you could. Lesson number 12. But anyway, he alone qualified to be mankind's perfect sin substitute. He was the only one perfect enough to pay the wages of sin on our behalf and satisfy the holiness and the justice of God and yet defeat the grave and come out of the tomb victorious. So John's doxology of praise was in response to grace that endures. He loves us. God loves us. He continues to love us. It was also for grace that emancipates. And this speaks about the Lord's washing and loosing power. And then, as if this wasn't enough reason for believers to give Christ all of the glory in their lives and submit to him, you know, give him full authority over their lives, John went ahead and gave us a third reason to do so. And that was for his grace, which elevates. And this is what we find in the first half of verse 6, where John reminded his readers that Christ hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. You see, having cleansed and loosed us of sin's guilt and power, we as believers are no longer slaves to what? No longer slaves to sin, but we are elevated. We are lifted up from slavery. We once were slaves. We were slaves to our own flesh. We were slaves to the prince of this world, Satan, and we were slaves to sin. But he has elevated us from our slavery to being kings and priests. In Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6, God had called Israel, the nation of Israel, to be a kingdom of priests. But the Jewish people had failed him, and consequently their kingdom was taken from them. One day they'll get it back, but in, for now it has been taken from them. Now the church, which consists of all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, um, consists of kings and priests as we exercise spiritual authority and as we serve God in this world. We are a kingdom of priests. We are, spiritually speaking, a holy priesthood. That's what Peter calls us, a holy priesthood or a royal priesthood. In 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 9. And we're told in Ephesians 2, 6 that positionally, and I'm not speaking about our practice right now. I'm talking about our position in God's sight. Positionally, we are seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're told that in the coming kingdom, we will actually reign with Christ. However, and that's amazing to think about, isn't it? He's going to be king of kings. And I've often wondered if the king of kings, are we the kings reigning with him? You know, I used to think the kings were the rulers of this earth, but he's going to do away with them and we'll be the kings. He's going to be the king of us, the king of kings. However, even though we positionally sit with Christ in the heavenlies, you know, right now we're seated with him because if we're in Christ, we're with him. That's our position. It's not our practice. And even though one day we are actually in our practice, 
going to reign with him over the kingdom on earth, a thousand-year kingdom. Yet, we are still his servants, so don't get your head too big. (laughs) We are still his servants, and it will be our eternal joy to acknowledge his glory and his dominion over us forever and ever. We will always be acknowledging his glory, not our own glory, and we will always be acknowledging his dominion over us throughout all of eternity, and we'll be glad to do so. So we have been told in this doxology that we as believers are by God's grace elevated to be priests unto God and unto his, speaking of Christ's Father. And at this point, I want to digress for a minute to discuss the priesthood of the believer. You know, in the days of the Old Testament, there was a distinctive priesthood. God had designated Aaron who was Moses' brother, and his descendants, the tribe of Levi, to be the priests in Israel. They acted as the go-betweens, or the mediators, between God and men, or between the people of Israel and God. Now, the priests, of course, were the ones who offered the sacrifices on the behalf of the people to God, And they were the only ones who could enter into the holy place of the tabernacle and then later the temple. In fact, only the high priest, and remember we studied this last year, only the high priest could enter into the most holy place or the holy of holies. And he could only do that on one day out of the year, that he could actually go behind that thick veil and enter into the holy of holies. What was that one day? Yes, the Day of Atonement was the only day he could enter into the Holy of Holies. But the priests of Israel were a distinctive and a separated group of men. However, in the New Testament era, all of this changed. On the day when the Lord Jesus Christ, the once-for-all perfect sacrifice, was slain there on Mount Calvary, what happened? What was a miracle that happened the moment he was that he gave up the spirit? Right, that large, thick, it was 60 by 30 feet, and they said it was as thick as a man's palm. Four inches, I guess it's about four inches. That was that thick. That veil tore the minute the Lord Jesus gave up the spirit, and it tore from what to what? Top to bottom, because who did it? God did it. He did it as a sign. That now the most holy place where God was, God's presence was symbolized. You remember that's where the Shekinah glory cloud used to be hovering over was inside the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. That symbolized God's presence. Well, when the once for all perfect sacrifice died, that way to God was opened up. And now we can boldly, as Christians, in Christ, we can boldly enter into the presence of God, right? With our own petitions, our own prayer requests, and our own praise, the fruit of our lips, our praise to him, and our own intercessory prayers on the behalf of others. And that's what that curtain, there's a picture of the curtain. Of course, it would never have been pulled to the side like that, but they purposely did that so we could see inside to the Holy of Holies. And that was a divine miracle which was performed by God himself to demonstrate from the t- that from the time of Christ's death to this very present day, every true believer 
is now considered a priest who has open access into the Father's presence. You are all priests unto God. We together form a kingdom of priests. We are a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. The New Testament speaks absolutely nothing, nothing about a distinctive group of men who are to function, as in the days of the Old Testament, as mediators between men and God. Since the time of Christ, every believer, as I just said, is a priest with the privilege of coming right into the very throne room of God to offer up his or her sacrifice of praise, to offer up herself. We are to be a living sacrifice unto God, as it says in Romans 12.1, and, of course, to present our petitions in prayer. However, sadly and tragically, during the course of church history, many have departed from the New Testament teaching about the priesthood of all believers. And instead, they have gone right back into Old Testament Judaism. And the result is that there is a lot of Judaism in Christendom today. Many people, many churches have bought have brought into Christendom a distinctive group of men and have given them titles which separate them from the rest of the believers, you know, the laity, the the congregation. Oftentimes, these special men, and nowadays even sometimes women, are even given special garments to wear, you know, much like the garments that the Old Testament priests would wear. And they are held up as being special. And sometimes they are even looked upon as the ones who can pray to God for the people. And tragically, sadly, many people rely upon them to read and to interpret the scripture for them instead of reading it themselves. And many people sadly and tragically because this is the way they've been raised all their lives and tradition sometimes speaks louder than truth and they don't know any better even though they are accountable before God to know better but any time oftentimes they sadly seek their guidance from God through these men instead of seeking their guidance directly from God himself and through his word And this is nothing less than Judaism. It is Old Testament theology, which is never, ever found in the theology and in the doctrine of the New Testament. You know, not one of the books in the New Testament teaches that we are to have a distinctive, selective, separated group of people whom we refer to as professional Christians. This is just Old Testament theology. Judaism brought into the New Testament church, and it is wrong. It is wrong. And you know, there are a lot of other aspects of Judaism which have been brought erroneously into the church, such as very elaborate altars, um, ecclesiastical adornments of all kinds, numerous aids to worship, ritual, the religious calendar. Uh, holy days and holy seasons, all of these and many more things are hangovers 
from the Old Testament that God intended to be done away with. Well, since the time of Christ, the teaching is that all believers are priests unto God. While it is true that some believers have been called to serve Christ in one way, perhaps by being given the gift of a pastor-teacher, or in another way, perhaps by being given the gift of an evangelist, yet the fact remains that each believer has been called to serve Christ in one way or another, but all are equal. None is more important than another. All believers are equal. We are all, whether we're pastor, teachers, evangelists, or just ordinary people with with other spiritual gifts, we are all expected to use our gifts, and every true believer has gifts, spiritual gifts, given by God the Father. We are all to use our gifts to serve and edify the whole body of Christ. Significantly, we each have the equal privilege of speaking to God directly and personally. And we each have the privilege and responsibility of seeking his will and having him reveal his will to us directly through his word. We don't need someone to interpret his word for us. We don't need someone to tell us what God's will is for us. We can go to God directly through his word and through prayer. And we are all responsible to read and study on our own what he has given us, as well as to have it taught to us. But always make sure that whoever is teaching it to you is going by the book. You know, you are to make sure that they are teaching you the true doctrines from the word of God. Don't just take their word for it. Test it by God's word. And we do not need anyone else to be a go-between for us. There is only one mediator between God and man. And who is that? Christ Jesus. It is not Mary. It is not the Pope. It is not some man. The only one is the God-man, Jesus Christ. So because Christ loves us and because he has loosed us from our bondage to our sins by his precious shed blood and because he has given us direct access to God by making us a royal priesthood, we should, along with John, give him the glory and the dominion in our lives, which he rightfully deserves, doesn't he? Absolutely. But there is yet another reason that John gives us for us to praise the Lord Jesus Christ and to submit to his dominion, and it is because of his yet future work. Christ is coming again. Whether you think so or not, he is coming again, and this is a certified promise which we find in the next verses, or the next verse in verse 7. So let's read that verse. It says, Behold, he cometh. That's a promise. He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, what? Amen. The basic overriding theme, as we've said over and over again, so you get it, the basic overriding theme of the book of Revelation is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to defeat all evil and to establish his kingdom. This is a book of judgment for Christ's enemies, but it is a book of victory for 
his friends, for those who know him and love him, for his people. And his people are repeatedly referred to in the book of Revelation as overcomers. I like that name. Do you want to be an overcomer? Well, if you're in Christ, you are an overcomer. Believe it or not, some days we don't feel like it, but we are. And we're referred to that many times, not only in Revelation, but also in 1 John, which is just another proof to me that the author, the true author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John because he is the one in all the New Testament who uses that word. He uses it in 1 John, which we know was written by John the Apostle. And here we find it many times, more than seven. You know, if it was seven, I would have told you, but more than seven times in Revelation. Now, the three words of verse 7, which are the title for our message, Behold, he cometh, that, those three words speak, of course, of Christ's return, which is described to us in a lot more detail when we get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 and forward. That's when we'll come to the actual return of Christ. Now, this is not the same as the Lord's return in the air. You know, when he comes to catch away his people, all the church-age saints from Pentecost until what is known as, what? The thing I'm talking about right now. The rapture. This is not, verse 7 is not speaking about the rapture of the church, which we find described for us in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, and also 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53. You see, what we need to understand, in case you don't know about this, is that there are two parts or two aspects to the Lord's second coming. There's one second coming, but it's divided into two parts. One is the rapture in the air, and the other is his return to the earth. The rapture is the Lord's private coming, because only those who are born again are going to see him. See him. We'll hear the trumpet, and the next thing we know, we'll be seeing him, just in a twinkling of an eye. It is the time, the rapture is the time when all believers of the church age receive their resurrected bodies. Those who have already died and are buried will receive their, uh, will have their resurrected bodies raised right up out of the graves, and those resurrected bodies will join with the soul of the departed one in heaven. And those who are alive at the time of the rapture will just immediately have their human body transformed into a resurrected glorified body in a twinkling of an eye as they are being caught up to heaven with Christ. That's a fantastic hope, isn't it? That everyone in this room, may, you may not have to die. You may just be like Enoch, just out of here in a second. <laughs> what does that beam me up, Scotty? <laughs> we just may be beamed up in a second. So that's the rapture. On the other hand, the return of Christ will be public. Because as verse 7 tells us here, every eye shall see him. The first one is private. Only Christians will see him, will hear him and see him. And here in verse 7, talking about the return of Christ. Now, some call it the return. Some call it the glorious appearing, as you see there. Um, others have referred to it as the revelation 
of Christ, when he reveals himself. I don't want to call it the revelation, even though that is when he reveals himself to the world and the the world finally knows who he is. I don't want to call it the revelation because it gets too confusing with me speaking about the book of Revelation. So I'm going to call it the return or the glorious appearing. Um, But it says here that even... Uh, repentant Israel will see him. That include, you know, every eye includes everybody who will be alive at that time. At the time of his return, the Lord will not be coming for his saints as he does in the rapture. The rapture, he comes for his saints, but at his return, he will come with his saints. You and I will be coming with him when he comes back to this earth. That's Revelation 19, 14. And this, this will be the time when Christ returns in his glory, when he subjugates all of the kings of this earth, you know, when he ends the battle of Armageddon, when he binds Satan for a thousand years, when he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, and when he judges the nations, you know, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, and then when he establishes his 1,000-year kingdom on earth. That is when all that takes place, is at the time of his return, the second part of the second coming. So the Lord's second coming consists of two aspects or two parts, the rapture and the return. One is private and the other is public, and they are separated by an interval of time, which I believe to be seven years, although Christians do disagree on this, and we'll get into that further at another time. Now, this two-part coming of the Lord is really not something new. It is really not something strange, because his first coming was of the very same type. First of all, the Lord came privately, and he came only to those who were looking and waiting for him. He came privately. The world didn't know about it. It was really kind of a secret, although they could have figured it out according to the scripture. But he came privately, and he came for his saints. Why did he come to this earth? To die for all those who would believe on him. So he came for his saints. And he came to those who were looking and waiting to him for him, such as Mary and Joseph. Of course, the parents of John the Baptist, they were good, godly people. He came to Mary and Joseph. He came... Um, to the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem who were believers. He came to the wise men, right, from the east who had been looking for the Messiah's star in the heavens. And remember, he came to two very godly people who had been waiting for a long, long time for the Messiah, old Simeon and old Anna in the temple. So he came the first time The first part of his first coming, he came privately, and he came for his saints. And then approximately 33 years later, the Lord Jesus came publicly, didn't he? When he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on the very day that Daniel had predicted, in Daniel 9.25, the very day Daniel had predicted the Messiah would come. On this day... He came into the city with his saints. Who was following him? A lot of believers from Galilee and other believers he'd picked up on the way. 
as he came through Jericho. Probably Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus and others were with him. He came, of course, with his disciples as well. So he came with his saints and he came publicly presenting himself to the entire nation and really to the entire world that he was the Messiah of Israel, that he is the Savior of the world. So see, it's not anything new. His first coming had two aspects. His second coming will have two aspects, and they are separated by an interval of time. Now, it is clear here that verse 7, we just looked at in Revelation 1, is not referring to the first part of the Lord's second coming. In other words, it is not referring to the rapture, but it is referring to the return. How do we know that? Because it says, every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. That speaks of Israel. And it says, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. That speaks of Gentiles and unsaved people. So this is not the rapture, the private coming for his saints. This is a return, the public coming with his saints. Based upon this verse, which does agree with other scripture passages, two things can be said about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ following the seven years of tribulation on earth. First of all, it will be visible. That's pretty clear from this verse. Who is it that will see him? Well, we're told every eye. That speaks about every eye that is alive, that belongs to a body, (laughs) that's on a head, every eye on the face of the earth, at that time when he returns, will see him. And this means both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews are mentioned as they which pierced him. Zechariah had prophesied about this event long ago. Zechariah had been inspired to write this, quote, They shall look upon me whom they have, what? Pierced. And they shall mourn for him, Don't tell me there isn't a triune Godhead, that there isn't a God the Father and God the Son. When he says, they shall look upon me and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. That was in Zechariah 12.10. So it does speak about the Jews. It also speaks about the Gentiles because they are referred to as all kindreds of the earth who shall wail because of him. And this is almost identical to what the Lord himself said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 30, when he predicted his own return with these words. He said, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Those were the Lord's own words about his return. Now, why is it that these people will be mourning? Why do you think they'll be mourning? Well, because they had rejected Christ. And now they see that he is Christ and that they shouldn't have rejected him because now it's too late. He is coming back to be their judge. And they are mourning. And they are running to the hills and begging for the hills and the mountains to fall on them, which shows us that they are still rejecting him. Right? because otherwise they would run to him and beg for mercy. Now, the second thing that can be said about the Lord's arrival is that not only will it be visible, but it will also be victorious. Okay, so two Vs, visible and victorious. One day, and I believe this is coming in the not-too-distant future, 
I get about four or five different prophecy magazines and newsletters and that sort of thing. And um, I've been reading a lot of books this over the summer months. And I am more convinced than ever, ever, ever with everything that's happening. I can't wait till we get into this part, but things are happening, happening at a very rapid pace as we head toward the end of this sixth millennium since uh, mankind has been on planet Earth. We are about to begin the seventh millennium. And you know God in his timing. The end of the seventh millennium could be the end of the 1,000-year reign when everything would be perfect. I mean, it just makes sense that as we head toward the beginning of the seventh millennium of mankind, that something is about to happen. And with the way things are lining up in the Middle East and in the rest of the world, they even now have the, the chip, the little chip that they're talking about putting under the surface of the skin, you know, which is just everything for the Antichrist to just step in and the mark of the beast right there. Anyway, it's exciting to me because it means that one day very soon I'm going to be seeing my Redeemer, my Creator, my Lord and my Savior. He's going to come back to claim that which is rightfully his. And then all of those who have abused this world and all of those who have attempted to usurp his place will be defeated by merely a spoken word from his lips. Remember when the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, this one always gives me goosebumps when I read about all those soldiers that came to arrest him and the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and there. And even the, the um, temple police were there. A whole bunch of men. And the Lord said two words when they asked for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. What happened to them? Like dominoes, they all went. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> they all fell over as dead men. Well, one day, the whole world is going to do that when he returns. And ends that battle of Armageddon. And smites the enemies of Jerusalem with just a word. What do you think he'll say? <laughs> I am, maybe, I don't know what that word will be. But anyway, he'll defeat them all with just one word. And then those who have been saved during the time of the tribulation, those seven years of tribulation on earth, people will be coming to know the Lord. A lot of people will be coming to know the Lord. Well, those who will not have been martyred and will still be alive when he returns will shout with joy. And I think they're going to say the same thing we read John read, saying here. Even so, <laughs> amen, so be it. Here he is, the king is back. They're going to be, can't you just imagine the excitement when those tribulation saints are going to know they've been rescued by the return of the Lord Jesus. And Israel, which has been blinded for so long, will have the scales finally fall from her eyes as she beholds the one she pierced and then realizes at long last that he is indeed her Messiah. And she will be saved. As a nation, she will be saved according to Romans 11:26. So his return will be visible to all and it will be victorious over all. All right, the last part of our outline, let's look at verse 8, the divine person, a divine person. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, in this verse, we have the first of seven great I am statements concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that are given to us in the book of Revelation. You know, just as there were seven I am statements made in the book of John, which is a book which speaks about the time of the Lord's first coming, his incarnation, we find there are seven I am statements made by Christ in, in regard to his second coming in the book of Revelation regarding the time of his glorification. Isn't that neat? Seven related to his incarnation, seven related to his glorification. Well, this is the first of seven. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Um, and it, this verse contains one of the most glorious and one of the most comprehensive claims to Christ's deity, which is found in all the scripture. And I hope you'll be able to follow me as we see Christ's deity in the book of Revelation. This is something you want to get a grasp on so that when those Jehovah Witnesses and other people who deny the deity of Christ come to your door or when you meet them out there in the world, you can have these verses which are in their own Bibles, even though they've perverted other parts of their Bible, this, these verses I'm going to be showing you are identical in their Bible, and you can show them and prove to them that Jesus is Christ, and that Jesus is God. He's Christ also. His first great I am statement is that he is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the ending. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter. Do you know where we get the word alphabet? Do you ever think about it? Yeah, I know you can't stay awake at night because you're wondering, where do we get the word alphabet? <laughs> the Greek alphabet is alpha, beta. Actually, in Greek, it's alpha, vita. Alpha, beta. They just took the A off. Alphabet. Did you ever know that? You learned something today. So it's the first and the last. Now, I went to Greek school for many, many years as a child. My mother made sure that we went to Greek school every day after public school, and I hated it. We went to Greek school from four to six. And I thought, this is such a waste of time. But today, I'm going to prove to you it was not a waste of time because I'm going to say for you the Greek alphabet so that all those years weren't wasted. Alpha, Vita, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, Yota, Kappa, Lambda, Mi, Ni, Xi, Omicron, Pi, Rho, Sigma, Taf, Epsilon, Phi, Hi, Psi, Omega. Come on. <laughs> so Alpha is the first letter and Omega is the last letter. So in other words, what Christ was saying here is that he is everything from A to Z as we would say. He is everything that God has to say because he is the word of God, right? He is the living word of God. Now, the Lord's statement about being the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, is also a way of stating that he is eternal. He is the Almighty One. As a matter of fact, he even gives that um, name for himself at the end of the verse. He is the Almighty One of eternity past, and eternity future. He is the beginning and the ending. He is at the beginning of all things, and he will be at the end of all things that end. He is unlimited by time. And as I said, he's also the Almighty, and that is a key name for God the Father in the Scripture. 
And also in Revelation, we find God the uh, Father called the Almighty in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine different places in Revelation alone. It's a very, very strong argument for the deity of Jesus Christ that he is given the same title that God the Father was given as the Almighty and also as God the Father was given back in verse 4 because here he is called him which is and which was and which is to come. And remember back in verse 4 we said that is speaking of God the Father. Now here Christ is given that same title. Now at this point someone might question and rightfully so. They might question whether verse 8 is really a reference to Christ. I mean how do we know they might ask us, how do we know that this isn't speaking about God the Father? After all, it merely says, if you look at the verse, it says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. There isn't really anything in that statement that tells us this was Christ speaking, right? Right. It could be God the Father. And it really does sound more like God the Father, because all of these names I've just shown you are names for God, God the Father himself. So someone might say this to us, and I would have to agree 100% with what they're saying. You're absolutely right. This does sound like God the Father. So let's just say that this is not a reference to Christ, okay? But will you now turn with me to Revelation 22:13, please? Revelation 22, verse 13. And let's consider another very similar statement to Revelation 1, 8. The speaker here says, I am what? Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, whoever this speaker is, would you say that he is claiming equality with God the Father? Absolutely. He's saying he was at the beginning and he's going to be at the ending. There's no one who is eternal except God. So he is claiming deity, definitely. So now we ask, who is this speaker? Well, the answer is given in the next statement that he makes. And that is found down in verse 16 where he says, what? I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and that's definitely Jesus, and the bright and morning star. Now, there is no doubt here that the one who claims to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and the last, is Jesus Christ. No doubt about that. Furthermore, now if you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, let's read on a little further, okay? And we're going to find out that the same person who spoke in verse 8 speaks again in verses 17 and 18 where he says fear not I am the first and the last well let's say it isn't even the same person in verse 1 okay let's just say that this is someone else and he's saying I am the first and the last well that immediately ties him in with the one who spoke in verse 8 Anyone who claims to be the first and the last is claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So this one says, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth, and now notice the next two words, was dead. Was God the Father ever dead? 
No, sir. But was God the Son ever dead? Yes, as a man he was. And then he says, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So, you see, by cross-referencing these passages in the book of Revelation, and I hope you'll write these down and remember them, to use, this is a weapon to use with those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it, who this is, that Jesus is God. By cross-referencing all these passages, we can conclude that whether 1, 8, Revelation 1, verse 8, is God the Father speaking... Or whether it's Jesus Christ speaking. The conclusive evidence is that they are one and the same. Remember what the Lord said to his disciples? He said, he that hath seen me hath seen who? The Father. And he said in another place, I and my Father are one. So who is the person of Jesus Christ? Well... He is the eternal God himself. He is unlimited by time. He is also the almighty one who is able to do anything and everything. And don't ever forget that. So Jesus Christ is the central figure of the opening verses of the book of Revelation because he is both both the theme and the source of the book. Furthermore, we have seen that he is the faithful witness. He is the first begotten of the dead. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the source, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, of grace and peace to the believer. He is the one who loves us, present tense, and keeps on loving us. He is the one who washed us from sin's stain and who loosed us from sin's chain. And he is the source of our royal priesthood. He is the reason that you and I have direct access to the very throne room of the living God. And he is also the one promised to come again, both visibly and victoriously, to take his rightful seat as king over all. So Jesus Christ is everything, isn't he? He is everything. And next week... We're going to have an exciting lesson. We're going to cover more territory. And we are going to be given the marvelous privilege of looking into the very face of the glorified, resurrected Christ through the Patmos vision of John as we read and as we study the only physical description of our Savior which is given to us in all of the Word of God. And that's what we'll look at next week. So I hope you'll be here. And I hope you'll get your backsliding friends who are at the state fair back. And leave that on the tape. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time that we have had this morning in your precious word. Thank you for the fellowship we have had. And thank you most of all for giving us just another vision of the glory and majesty of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who does deserve all the glory in our lives and who does deserve full dominion, not only over our lives, but over this entire world. And Lord, we say with John, even so, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you and we pray in his name. 
Amen.